Hello and welcome to Money Chill Out, the podcast to get inspired and feel good about your money. I'm Marika Fino, a woman in my 30s, ex-trader in the city of London, yoga teacher and owner of my financial empowerment business. On this podcast, I want to open up the discussion around money and investments and dive into personal finance management, which can be a great liberator, but also a huge stress factor in our lives. Every other week, I'll be joined by guests for conversations on money, mindsets, investment habits, and any best practices they abide by. So join me on this journey as we unpick the complexities of finance and get more comfortable talking about our money. You too can get financial peace of mind and it starts with empowerment and knowledge. Let's go. Hi, Daniel. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, super nice. Thank you. I'm very happy to have you on. It's been a while. I've been thinking about doing this episode about giving back, which is one of the ways to make you feel good about your money and really support the causes you care about and that you want to see more in the world. In terms of financing, it's the fifth pillar in your money management after earning, spending, saving and investing. So in the last, but clearly not the least, and I'm glad we're going to learn from you because you're an expert in that field. So if I say a bit about you, so you're the co-founder and chief executive of the Cure and Action for Tay-Sachs Foundation, Tay-Sachs being a rare and terminal illness. You've launched it back in 2011 after your daughter's been diagnosed with it. And your focus is really on providing support to families, to fund research as well, and to raise awareness. You've also created a brand for the charity, which is recognizable in the rare disease charity area. And you're known to the NHS, which is the public health system in the UK, as a reliable source of information for families. Do you want to add anything? No, 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 that's us, really, the Cats Foundation. I mean, I can tell you a bit about us and why we were created. It might give a bit more context. So clearly, as you mentioned, back in 2011, we set the charity up because my daughter, so my wife and I set the foundation up when our daughter, Emily, was diagnosed with Tay-Sachs disease at 15 months of age. So at the time, she was our eldest child. We're looking out for support. And what's very common in the rare disease space is you're told there is no other family There's no one you can turn to for support or advice. Go home. This is a terminal illness. And sadly, your child's going to pass away and there's no treatment. And there's kind of two routes you can go down. You can either go down the route of this is awful, lock yourself in a dark room and just cry. Or you can think, you know what? I want to make a difference. So we took the second option to set the charity up really to, first of all, look at providing a support network for lots of other families and also to see if we could find a treatment because we had a beautiful daughter sitting on our lap at the time the disease which is progressive she was happy smiling we thought maybe there's something we could do to help her potentially save her and other children sadly in the nature of the disease it progressed to a point where we couldn't really do anything for her just to make her as comfortable as possible as the disease progressed on but we set this charity up to bring families together and that's what we've been very successful at doing is bringing families together getting the right level of support and actually driving forward the research and treatment. So back in 2011, there's one research project going on up in Cambridge in the UK. And we fast forward to 2023, we've got multiple clinical trials being started, different therapeutic interventions with uh, gene therapy, with enzyme replacement therapy, small molecules. And a lot of this has really been driven by the charity 
being a collaborator and bringing all the key stakeholders together, which has been um, one of our our big successes. Mm, Super powerful. So if we go into more concrete into your job, what does it englobe? So everything. So there's a very good phrase that they use about rare disease charities, and they call them kitchen top charities, because they tend to happen where a mum and a dad set something up on their kitchen table because there is nothing out there. So we do our work and I put the kids to bed. You start work at eight, nine o'clock and you work all through the evening to early hours of the morning. You're basically setting up a brand, which is really, really important because about a brand awareness, people don't really know who you are and what you're doing. And that's something we did a lot of work on. But the part of the role is just maintaining the administrative side, which again, people don't realize how much work goes into that, especially in a small charity, because you have to do annual reports, annual accounts, you have donors, you have supporters, you have to give information back to. And on top of that, we have to actually support families, which is the kind of most vital thing we do. And then it's driving forward research, it's speaking to pharmaceutical companies, speaking to researchers, being able to have those scientific conversations with them, give the impression you, you know what they're talking about half the time. But then also speaking to regulators, which is really important, so speaking to the FDA or the EMA, so it's the um, European Medicines Agency to drive forward approvals in our disease. So it's um, one of those roles that you are doing a million things at the same time. So it's fun, exciting, but also a lot of, of hard work and doing very different things. I can imagine. Yeah, it's super broad. So how many other people are on the job with you? And is there a mix of volunteers and paid workers and employees? Or Yeah, so we're very fortunate that we put in place a kind of growth plan without growing too quickly because we had to be really aware that within our community we're a rare disease so one in 320,000 people are affected by Tay-Sachs or Sandoff disease so to put that into perspective we probably in the UK for example get two to four new diagnoses of families so we had to make sure that we grew the charity that maintained that level of support to them without growing too fast too quick and trying to kind of conquer the world which is what you really want to try to do. So we're fortunate that we've secured funding to bring in support workers who actually support the families. That's their entire role. We're fortunate, again, to have someone who can actually be the overall director of the charity to maintain the administration, to maintain the objectives, maintain our plan as we try to to grow forward. And we have our volunteers, which are our trustees, that support us on making sure we are achieving our goals that we set each year. So keeping us on, on a real clear path. And our path is very much towards support and treatments. Make sure the families are supported and make sure we can drive forward treatments for the disease. Hmm. Is there an age or gender that is most represented or no, it's pretty broad again? It's quite broad, but what we found is the families that we support want to be involved because they recognise the support that they've received from the charity over the years. So actually our two family support officers who we got funded by a big uh, grant from the National Lottery, for example, they're both mothers who lost children to the disease. So they had that first-hand experience, which is really, really important. And it's the same with our, our charity director, impacted by the disease within her family. So actually, they understand the mission. They understand what we're trying to achieve. And I think that's really important as a makeup of as the organisation. Because it's so small, we need really passionate people who can help us achieve what we want to achieve. It makes so much sense. Yeah. 
So in terms of financing, now, can you share what represents your running cost and which is like the, I don't know, expenses covering the wages or offices? And the reason I'm asking is that most people, or I guess that's my view at least, want to know where the money will be used for and if it's going to go to the end goal. And I think the most transparent we are, the more, I mean, it can benefit the cause at the end. Hmm. No, I completely agree. And actually, this is something which I am very have a very strong view about. First thing, I get frustrated when I see small charities like us funding research, because we can never fund clinical trials. We're talking in the millions and tens of millions to do that. Even driving forward a research project can cost you hundreds of thousands. So what we do actually is we work with our researchers and we work with pharma companies to help them secure funding. But what that also means is that the money that we raise goes directly to our support services. So our money goes directly to our families in terms of respite trips, which are really, really important. Annual conferences, bringing people together bringing new initiatives in terms of support. This could be in developing children's books. This could be other resources that are really, really important clinical guidelines. The way we were set up was to make sure that we can secure funding from grants. For example, in the UK, the National Lottery, we've got a grant there to fund our support workers. So our donors aren't giving money to fund that aspect. They're actually funding the aspect of the projects that we run. And I think that's really important because they see a tangible output to money that they're they're donating to the charity. But we are also very upfront that we have paid staff because you need paid staff to get their commitment and dedication. Again, from the early days, we had volunteers, but you feel sometimes their priorities can shift. And so by having the paid staff, it means they can be really committed to the role that they're doing. And again, our running costs are probably around about all in. We raise around about 100,000 a year. But we don't need to raise any more than that because it enables us, when I say raise, that's through grant funding, that's through general donations, that's through corporate support. We don't need to raise a huge amount because our costs aren't particularly huge because we're not just donating all a lump sum of cash that many charities do to research. And we, I use like a garden analogy. We all want to have that huge kind of park, which looks beautiful. That's amazing. But actually, for us, we just need a very small garden. We can keep really pretty and kind of meets the needs of our community. And that's what we focus on. We don't focus on trying to be this huge overarching charity. We have a very specific goal, a very specific community, and that's what we're committed to. Mm-hmm. But again, as long as it's super clear, it makes total sense. Yeah. So how are you being financed? Do you only rely on private donors or do you have public ones too? And, and you were talking about grants just before. Yeah, so we apply to grants all the time. That's a really important way for us to attract in funding for very specific projects. So it could be for, we want to hold a conference. We will go to particular funders and that's what they fund in in the rare disease space. We go to the big national grants, for example, I mentioned before the National Lottery, for example. But also we do corporate sponsorship. So we do lots of pitching to companies to get them to support us for a year or again for a project. And we do the same with pharmaceutical companies. We um, get grants from their advocacy teams, which is really, really important for us. What I found over the years, and something that we've really implemented quite strongly from day one, was that we realized we had to sell our, sell ourselves to people. So we had to sell the charity mm. to big companies that want to support us. Our story is very, very powerful. We support children who unfortunately are dying. They lose the ability to function independently. And it's just a very sad disease were a very sad outcome. So the story is powerful, but we have to get our foot in the door. And the way we get our foot in the door is by 
proactively selling what we do to people. So proactively going to companies and suggesting, you know, we're not asking for you to give us three million a year. We're just saying, can you support us with a five thousand pound, ten thousand pound, twenty thousand pounds, and as an annual support? And lots of companies are much more willing to do that because they can see the outcome, which is they're impacting a community directly. And again, we can provide back reports for that, which is what we do very effectively as well. And the other side of that is just the, the fundraising for our community, which is really important. And again, that makes the families we support feel part of something, that they're raising funds to support families, which is important. Mm-hmm. So how do you do the fundraising then? And for which occasions? And what have you learned doing that over the years? So uh, anything and everything. So from the small cake sales and bake sales to the the much larger events with the big dinners, with the big parties, which again are really important. What we found over the years, and this is just in general, the way the economic climate has shifted, fundraising has got harder because people have less money in their pocket. And actually people also want to see something in return, which is, I think is fair enough. There are lots of people being asked for money for different things. So for us, it's being very clear about how that money is going to be used. And if you have, as you mentioned before, that transparency, actually people are very willing to continue supporting the charity. And for us, again, that's really important. We don't want to have a model of one-off donations. We want to have a model where people are committed to our cause and stay committed to our causes like we are. And I think that transparency of how donations are collected and then used and what for is very, very important to do that. Mm-hmm. And I quite like the long-term view as well, because as you said, the one-off, I mean, it's still better than nothing, but you want people who are yeah, really in the long term and, and having that energy, I think it, it's quite vital as well. So let's talk about the act of giving back now. What is the profile of your donors in terms of age or wealth or other characteristics? It's very interesting. So look at the kind of corporate sponsorship first. So that tends to be, we've been very fortunate to have funding from big companies, like big investment banks, for example, which have a very different requirement. If you then look at your funders from small companies, the smaller companies don't have as many rigorous kind of processes in place of reporting back how the money's being used. But we still do that because we think that's important. Of the funders themselves, we're again, we're very lucky that we have a huge range of demographic of the type of people. We do have some wealthy donors who will give us one-off donations kind of in the thousands, which is just amazing. We're very fortunate that we have very committed fundraisers who are relatively young. And actually, we've done a lot of work with siblings. So these are the brothers and sisters of those people who've been diagnosed with the disease who actually do their own community fundraising. And again, empowering them for them to feel part of a community is important. We've had kids from the age of like six or seven raising money, which I think is amazing because it show, they're showing that they're thinking of other people. And I think that's something that we're trying to really do is empower that kind of age demographic as well to kind of stay with the charity. We go to the schools, we present with them at schools. And I, and I think it's really important that people see that it raises the profile of the charity, but actually we want to work with as many people as possible to raise funding into, into the organisation. No, it's beautiful, especially, as you say, kids, like they have a open heart. And yeah, if you give them the right habits straight away, it's, um, yeah, well done. And what can you say, being an expert in that field, to people who do give but could give more or those who don't give because not that they don't have a conviction, but just because, I don't know, they don't take the time or they don't realize actually they could make a difference? I think that giving in the charitable sense is quite congested now. 
it used to be there were there weren't as many charities out there that people were were, were kind of associated to and now there are charities for everything and people are asking for money for lots of different things and i think it's only fair that as charities we give a respect to people about that and then we give them information they ask about how is the money used where is it coming from that we give them answers and i think enabling them to make an informed decision will actually, as we mentioned before, will keep them involved with um, the charity in the long term. Again, we want to shift from a one-off donation to a continuous flow of of income so we can get sustainable income. I would always say to people, give a, to a cause that you actually care about, because there are so many causes out there now that you can do the research. And if you do speak to a group who doesn't give you the information you want, then that find it from somewhere else or go to another kind of patient group or charity that can provide you with that information. And don't feel bad if you shift who you support. Again, it's your hard-earned income. So you should have the freedom to decide how you want to use that. And anyone who gives even one penny, it makes a difference. And I think that's very important for people to realise. And I like it, the fact that, as you said, one penny, one pound, one euro is whatever it is, but the act, yeah. And so in many countries, charities or like gifts to charities and foundations, they're tax efficient. What are your views on it? At the end of the day, you have the money. So what do you think about that? I think it's brilliant to get a tax break on giving and it should be encouraged more. I know, for example, my colleagues in the US, by end of the US tax year, the amount of money they raise because people are pushing through the tax returns. And it's huge because, again, it's not like the money is being given into a black hole. As in, you're just giving someone cash and they're walking away with it. We're governed. We have regulators, you know, so we have to report annually. So it's, again, the money that's raised is used appropriately. And if it isn't, yeah, the regulator steps in. And I think that more countries should do more in terms of the charitable giving. It should actually be promoted more. Not many people realize, for example, in the UK, you can give before just tax deductible at your salary. So you can do it, set up with your payroll. So the money comes straight out. You don't even have to think about it or do anything yourself that sort of thing should be promoted way more because i actually think more people would do it because it's easier and this is all about ease of ease of donating we want to make it as easy as possible for to make a donation it's not a case of filling in five forms of paperwork if it's just a ticker box how much i want to donate a month that comes out my salary i think it's brilliant but i think that should be promoted a lot more Yeah, and I agree because even if I lived 10 years in the UK, I didn't even know it could exist. So, yeah. And if you can't provide financial support, so even though we said like from one pound or one euro, it definitely makes a difference. How can you get involved in other ways? Anyway, I think it's important that you, as an individual, you can support a charity, be it through emotional support. So being there for those people impacted by a condition in our case, or helping put on events. Again, that's really, really important. You don't necessarily have to give to the event, but you can help run it. And again, that raises the burden on the charity for us, because we're so small. As many volunteers as we get running events for us makes a massive difference because it enables us to raise more cash. It doesn't need to be from the person holding the event. Essentially, they can help us raise the money. And I think that, again, understanding the awareness raising they're doing is just as important as the financial raising they could do. Mm-mm. Yeah, so it's time versus money and, and both are equally important, yeah. And and do you have great stories to share about the act of giving? You were talking about children or any other stories that you kept 
Yeah, no, we've had some amazing stories of, of people stepping in to, to raise funds for charity. I mean, I look back where we've had children running 5K races at their school, for example, getting all of their colleagues at school to do a fundraising event, you know, which is raising 200 pounds, 300 pounds. And this is the children leading it themselves. And they're, they're actually showing awareness out at a very young age that there are people unfortunately in a less fortunate position than themselves and i think that's that's remarkable but actually i think in in the small disease space what i i find amazing is i have friends from school for example who will reach out who haven't spoken to for 20 years and then they'll hold an event that raises ten thousand pounds that sort of thing and for them just to reach out attach themselves to our cause not just me, but then other families really shows that we're we're touching people in the right way, which is we're giving them a very clear mission, a very clear purpose, and they can see actually their support will make a difference to many people. People are genuinely nice and helpful and really want to give back, but sometimes yeah, you're just lost with the flow of life. And, and um, yeah, if you have someone that inspires you, that gives you guidelines and that you understand the mission and, and, and you've been touched, yeah, that's, um, again, super powerful. And can you share your major achievement, like through the 12 years that you've set up the foundation and what are you most proud of? I think the major achievements for us is actually starting clinical trials and the disease because there was nothing. I have to take you back when Emily was diagnosed, bless her, that we were told there's nothing. There's no one you can speak to. There is no research. There is no trial. Just go home. Whereas now I look at families when they're diagnosed, they're diagnosed and given information about the disease. They're given information about the charity at point of diagnosis, who to speak to. And so they're coming away supported. And I think that my wife and I, that's what we're most proud of, that people don't go through this feeling of isolation. They're going through this feeling of, fine, this awful thing is happening in our life, but actually we can now be part of a community and that community can support me and my family as we go through this, this aspect of our, our life. In terms of what I'm most proud about, I'm really proud of the fact that we're still here. There's a thing where in small charities tend to start, they do really well for kind of two, maybe three years, but then interest wanes motivations change and normally after five years these groups will have shut down or a new charity has to be set up because people have lost as I said, that motivation i'm proud of the fact that we've set ourselves a goal we're on our way to it we're kind of halfway there but we're still really into the fight and the fight of finding those treatments and we have our supporters and they've stayed with us all the way through no 12 years is a very long time to have been doing this but we're like completely committed and i'm very proud of that mm. Beautiful. No, but thank you so much. It's a lot of dedication, a lot of energy. And again, it's beautiful that you, through your experience, you're really trying to help others. And um, yeah, so thank you so much for sharing your personal story, which is heavy, but as well, beautiful. Bravo on your mission. Beautiful again to create support and, and especially such in a hard time. So I'm very impressed and uh, well done. Thank you. And um, if our listeners want to support or give, can we give them information and or how can they reach out? Now, of course, if they just go to our website, which is cats-foundation.org, there's steps there to where you can donate to the charity. But if you want more information, you can just do email info at cats-foundation.org and uh, we can send you more information about the disease and the work we're doing. And hopefully some of your listeners would be really interested in supporting what we're trying to achieve. It should be fantastic. Yeah, I hope so too. Thank you so much, Daniel. 
Thank you. So at the end of this episode, I hope you're as enthusiastic as I am. You can find the notes and the key takeaways on my website at maricafino.com. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe and spread the word. Thank you.